She's nice, I hear. Thank you. Thank you. Monty Python is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's so ridiculous that usually when I'm watching it, I'm not laughing. I just watch and I stand there and I just like, they're ridiculous. And then later I laugh. I think it's funny when I think about it. Um, the, the rest of this skit is actually is a guy who's applying to the Ministry of Silly Walks for a grant. He wants to qualify for a grant for a new Silly Walk that he's developed. That's the whole skit. It's ridiculous. And, of course, we look this ridiculous when we are trying to walk in a way that pleases God. Oftentimes, I think we look like that. When we're trying to please God, we, we develop these things and these, we think that's kind of what, what, we're, what we're trying to do in our efforts to be wor- worthy. We say and do silly things like we could qualify, hence our silly walks. Paul and Timothy write to the church in Colossae because there's a bunch of silly stuff going on, ridiculous stuff. People claiming secret knowledge, like that's spiritual maturity. If you just, if you find out this secret stuff about God, then you're spiritually mature. When you know the secret stuff. Or they, you know, teach on how to please God by doing all these kind of, well, really like silly walks. People blending Jesus' trust with a smattering of Old Testament Jewish law and some next-door neighbor mysticism all mixed in, a magic amulet and some incantations. You know, we'll just blend it all in there and make something out of it. Silly stuff. And Paul opens his letter describing his prayer life. That's how he opens his letter, describing his prayer life for the Colossians. And his prayer is like, it's a teaching, really, on how to please God and walk worthy of him. Not silly, but worthy. And it's our question, too. I think, really, at the heart of it. How do we please God? What do we need to do to please God? So let's read. Uh, We're at Colossians chapter 1. We're only our second week in. Um, verses 9 to 14. If you need to catch up, you could go on our podcast or go on the website. There's sermons up there, and you can listen to the first part. So we'll pick up in uh, verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is God's word. So this morning we're going to hear Paul's assertion that we have everything we need to please God in Jesus. We have everything we need to please God in Jesus. We're going to have to know God in order to walk. We're going to have to know to walk. 
There's a story of uh, a guy in winter in Maine, and he was drunk one night, and so he decided he was going to go ice fishing. And so he went, he got his, his tools, and he went out on the ice, and he starts drilling on the ice. I'm, I picture like a hand drill. I'm not, I don't live in Maine. And so he's drilling on the ice, and suddenly he hears this booming voice. There are no fish under that ice. And he's like, oh my goodness, okay. And so then he goes, some, he goes over somewhere else, and he starts drilling again. And he hears again the voice. There are no fish under that ice. And so he's like, whoa, this is crazy. And he finds a different spot again. And, he's, and, and then he hears again. As he's drilling, he hears again. I said there are no fish under that ice. He says, God, is that you? And he hears, no, it's the rink manager. He's in the hockey rink drilling. That's what you get when you're drunk. I think a lot of times that's how it feels when we try to follow God. That's how it feels. It feels like we keep drilling in new spots only to find out we're in the hockey rink instead of out on the lake. Like, oh man, I've been wasting all this time and I'm not even, not even in the right spot. Or do we think God's angry with us? He's yelling at us all the time. And then we find out it was the intercom or something else. You're like, God, that wasn't even God. Like, I, so I thought, I thought God was telling me that he was mad, and, but it, it wasn't God. And we wrestle these feelings. And so Paul's prayer feels especially on point. Like, we need this. We need it. And Paul intercedes tirelessly. These words come up over and over and over tirelessly because of what God has already done. And we talked about that last week. Paul is praying and interceding because of what God has already done. Because the gospel is bearing fruit all over the world and in you. That was last week. Bearing fruit all over the world and in you. And so there's these things. Verse 3, that's how he starts. We always thank God. And now at the beginning of our part, verse 9, we have not ceased to pray for you. We haven't ceased. This is what we're always engaged in. This is the thing we're doing because of who God is and what he's done. And what does he say? He says, you need to be filled. You need to be filled. In the Greek, the, the word, the verb filled is passive. It's not like you go fill yourself. It's like a passive. So active is like you're doing something. Passive is it's happening to you. And commentators will call this a divine passive. It's like God is doing the thing to us. So we're, it's passive for us, but God is doing the action of us being filled. And so getting the knowledge of his will, it's not a class you take. It's not a secret society for super, super spiritual people. It's not a thing you nail once and then you move on. Oh yeah, I got the knowledge of his will and now I'm going on to other things. We are filled continually, needing to be filled. And Paul's going to mention this word knowledge a lot. All through Colossians, he's going to do this a lot. Because this is what the Colossians are struggling over. They have this, this message they've, they've heard and they've learned and they've taken into their heart that there's a secret knowledge or something. There's secret stuff. There's special knowledge that you need to be super spiritual. And so once I get the knowledge, then one, yeah, once I know it all, then I'm going to be able to sort all this out. And that's not Paul's message. But the wrestle is a thing for us too. Maybe not the same way. But I think we all want to know what God wants. 
Don't we? Don't you want to know what God wants to have the knowledge of his will? Isn't that what we agonize over? Like, God, what do you want? What do you want from me? What do you want me to do? But this is more than a knowing, you know, what God, how God wants you to behave. It's not about behavior, this knowing. It's about knowing the God who saves. It's about knowing the will of God through Jesus, revealed in Jesus. N.T. Wright says this, Understanding will fuel holiness, and holiness will deepen understanding. And so he says, as he looks at this passage, he says, it's not like steps you take. Like, oh, we get understanding, and then we get holiness, and then we can move on. It's like, it's going around in a circle, but it's not a circle where you stay the same. It's like understanding will fuel holiness, and then holiness deepens understanding. And then understanding fuels holiness, and we're moving. We're growing. That's what's happening. Now, I'm not sure if there's a scarier or more impossible-sounding idea than walking worthy and fully pleasing God. I don't, maybe it's just me. But I hear that, and I'm like, wow, that's heavy. Walking, Jenna prayed it this morning. Walking worthy and fully pleasing the Lord. Man, like, I grew up in a Christian home, and my my. Dad was a pastor, and so I grew up in the church. I grew up knowing and hearing about God. When I was seven, I was baptized. And in my Bible, where I was, when I was baptized, the verse that was put in there for me that I took on kind of as a life verse is 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. It's a beautiful passage, beautiful word. I think I kind of got stuck on the do your best to present yourself. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to do my best to present myself so that I could be approved. And I kind of started thinking, the, the more I thought about it and I was you know, getting older, I thought if, if I mar- got martyred, I was a weird kid. If I got martyred and if I was celibate and I somehow worked those, I felt like that would be a good start. If I could just find someone who will kill me for my faith, like Jim Elliott or something, like then I'm on my way to getting approved. Or if I could be celibate however long I, that can, oh, I can hold on for that, you know, like that would get me a good way toward being approved by God. It's weird, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm getting some nods. It was weird. I, mean, I was still weird. But this is the thing. The problem is we don't totally know what God wants. We're not sure about what God wants. You know, I think we're pretty sure he doesn't like swearing or beer or smoking or sex or people being mean. And we think he's uptight about working on Sundays and about church attendance. And he's got probably a soft spot for goody-goodies and judgmental hypocrites if the church is any measure, right? We'd be like, yeah, there's a lot of judgmental hypocrites in the church. Well, God must like them. That's the deal, right? And he's got a big 10, the 10 commandments. You should memorize that. And then there's a bunch of other ones in Leviticus. So I guess we kind of pick and choose. If you've got a tattoo, better leave that one, right? Oh, someone's going to quote it to you and be like, no, I left that one. No, I'm picking up this one. Okay, don't, you know, don't wear polyester, whatever. Slap people with your sandal. You know, weird things. You pick and choose. And maybe God's angry with sinners on any given day. We're not sure. Is he angry about that sinner, not about that one? I don't know. I, I, you know, hopefully we'll make it, and he'll be pleased. Don't be surprised if the idea of pleasing that God is out of reach. Don't be surprised if it's impossible. Paul seems to have it in his mind 
that we can please God. Because he says it a lot. He says it over and over. First Thessalonians 4.1. He writes, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you're living. Well, man, I want to move there. They're doing it. They figured it out. I don't know how. They figured it out. They're living to please the Lord. Or 2 Corinthians 5.8. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. I always have a hard time when I'm away from my body pleasing the Lord, but I try. I do my best. Romans 12.1, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. What? Holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. You know what? For the Jews, when they talked about walking, it was, a, it, it was synonymous with how you lived. So how are, how are you, how's your walk? How's your life? How are you living? It was about being led or how you are choosing to live. And walking with God meant living according to his commands. That's how they understood it. You walk with God, that means you follow his commands. You do what he's laid out. Knowledge and behavior were connected. They were connected, not separate. What you know about God leads you to what you do. Or as Wright says, understanding will fuel holiness, and holiness will deepen understanding. So we're filled with the knowledge of God in order that we can please him. But what exactly does that look like? It's like, I want a list. Just, that's just me. I want a list. Just, if you'll give me the list, I'll try to do the list. Don't give me all this philosophical mumbo-jumbo. Just, I want the list. What exactly do I need to do to please God? And I think if I asked you, lots of, many of you, or we went out and we asked people what they thought God wanted, what would be on the list, it would sound something like this. Don't sin so much. Go to church more. Give more money to church. Okay, I just put that one in there. <laughs> convert people. Or at least try really hard to convert people. They seem really offended. It's their problem. It's so offensive. They're just easily offendable. So just try really hard. If you can't convert anyone because they're offendable, it's their problem. Be nicer. Love everybody. I guess we should put that on there. Love everybody. Like, this is our list. So I'm so glad when I read Paul's list. It's like, it is a huge relief to me when I read Paul's list. You guys, this is Paul's list. Bearing fruit in good work. Growing in knowing God, being strengthened with all God's power, and giving thanks. Like, that's Paul's list. Those are the four. Not a single one is about sin. Not a single one mentions church attendance or giving. Darn it. None about doing more and working harder and feeling ashamed about your failure. Not one. It's so, such a relief. So awesome. So bearing fruit and growing. These, these two, the t- first two are put together. And maybe in your Bible, you know, however it's translated, it might not be put together, but the two ideas go together. Our first duty is to be fruity. Be fruity, tutti fruity. Bearing fruit in every good work. 
and increasing in the knowledge of God. And if you've got an ESV, that's what it will say. If you've got a different, maybe an NIV, New International Version, it will say, um, probably bearing fruit, something. And then instead of increasing, it says growing. Growing. And in the Greek, that, those two things are, are more easily connected. Because increasing doesn't sound like a fruity thing. But growing, that sounds like a fruity thing. Growing. Bearing fruit and growing. Those two things go together. And so we've got this picture. Bearing fruit in every good work. And we've got growing in the knowledge of God. These clauses actually modify each other. So because of how it's written, these things could all apply to each other. So bearing fruit doesn't just apply to in every good work. It also applies to the, in the knowledge of God. We bear fruit in the knowledge of God. And growing applies to in every good work as well. So it's kind of interchangeable the way it's written, the way it's laid out. Knowledge and behavior are connected. What is true about God leads to what we do. What's true about God leads to what we do. And often we get it backwards. We say, okay, what am I supposed to do? And then we try to do it. So we need to do good things. So serve, do, serve in the breakfast club. Okay, I'm going to serve in the breakfast club. Okay, and someone comes in and asks, oh, hey, why are you serving the breakfast club? I don't know. It's just what I'm supposed to do. John just made me feel guilty at church, and, and so I, now I'm serving at the breakfast club. I don't know why. That's a problem because that's not a gospel paradigm. The gospel paradigm is like, we should always have an answer for what we're doing. Why? And it's a beautiful picture. So if we use, I was with Jeff Vandersolt this weekend at Saturate, and this was a great picture that he gives for the questions they're asking. He says, in my parenting, in my marriage, in my church, these are the, this is how we talk about this. So next slide is, this is the picture. Who is God? Is the first question we should be asking. Who is God? What has he done? And then we're asking, who are we because of that? And then what do we do? And then maybe how do we do it? We start with like, serve at the breakfast club. Where's that? That's like what we do or maybe how we do it. That's the end, not the beginning. So the next one slide would be like, if I gave you the example, it would be like, God is holy. So who is God? God is holy. What has God done? He sent Jesus to atone for our sins. That's what he did. In his holiness, and his set-apartness, Jesus, who was holy and set-apart, who was perfect, came and atoned for our sins and made us holy. So who are we because of that? We are holy. We're holy. So then what do, what do holy people do? What do we do when we're holy? What do we do? We bear holy fruit and we do good work. Like, okay, so how do we do that? Well, it depends on the context, but maybe serve at the breakfast club. Why, am, why are you serving the breakfast club? Because God is holy. It's a beautiful story. Let me tell you about it. Let me tell you what he did. It's great. Why are we doing shoeboxes? God is love. And in his love, he sent Jesus to a people who were far away from him. So who are we? We are the loved of God. We were his enemies, and now we're the loved ones who love. So what do we do? We send shoeboxes to kids who are far away so they'll know the love of God. It's beautiful. Like, that's a different story than just do, do, do it. Just do good things. Jeff says, indicatives lead to imperatives. The things we know about God lead us to what we do for God. What's true about him leads us to what we do. And to the incredibly effortless job of being fruity, 
Paul adds being strengthened. <laughs> this is the funniest one to me. This is a thing we do. This is not at all how I would say it. Being strengthened, I'd say, be stronger. Go to the gym. Do something to get stronger. That's what you need to do. Be strengthened, that's a weird way to say it. Unless he doesn't mean it's something that you do. There's a, Paul tells the Colossians, basically this, they please God when they are strengthened by his power. They please God when they are strengthened by his power. There's this story of a, a logger who needs to sell his favorite chainsaw, and so he puts it on Craigslist, and uh, a farmer comes over uh, to buy the chainsaw, and so the, the logger says to him, uh, it's, it's an awesome chainsaw. It's my favorite one. It's, uh, it's, it's guaranteed to chop down 50 trees a day. 50. It's, just, it's an awesome chainsaw. And the farmer says, okay, thanks, and he takes it. That's how they talk, farmers, right? And um, the, a week later, the farmer comes back, this isn't a true illustration, right? Okay, just, it's, just bear with me. I just remembered we have a farmer here who knows how to work a chainsaw. Anyway, so the farmer comes back and he throws the chainsaw down at the, on the porch of the, the logger. And he says, this chainsaw doesn't even work. It, 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 it's, no way it's going to cut down 50 trees a day. You said 50 trees. The best I've done is, is three trees. That was the very best I got to do in one day. Three trees, not 50. And the logger says, oh, well, I'm, I'm really sorry picks it up and he's like, looks it over and and the, the farmer jumps back and his eyes are wide and he says, what's that noise? He's cutting them down. Three trees or 50. God gave us the Holy Spirit to live in us to live in us, to strengthen us with resurrection power. This, and this is how he says it, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. These, these are big, strong words he's using. Words that describe the all-sufficiency of God's power. That it's not like you're going to add to the power of God. The problem is we're, we're like... You know, you come in and we're like, I cut down three trees today. Three trees? Wow, I had a bad day. I cut down one. Wow. Well, eventually we'll get to 50. Yeah, I don't know that guy was at 50. I don't know how he did that. That Jesus guy who said, we'll do greater things than he did. I'm like, yeah, it's going to take me forever to get to 50 trees. Wow. Well, you haven't even turned on the chainsaw. So that's going to help a lot when we turn on the chainsaw. Right? Like, you and I don't always believe this. That's the problem, if we're totally honest. We don't live our lives as if we have the same power that raised Jesus from the dead alive in us. We don't. <laughs> we don't turn the chains on. So, a couple questions that you can write down and wrestle with when you go home. Why do we struggle with this? You could say, why do I struggle with believing this? And then secondly... What would change in my life if I did believe this? What would change? Why do I struggle with it? And then what would change if I did believe it? If I believed it was really true. And the last walk-worthy, God-pleasing thing that Paul outlines is that we would thank, give thanks with joy. Now, the with joy part 
is, depending on, again, which translation you have, it could go forward or backward. It could be with endurance, like strength with endurance, or it could be with thanksgiving. And the reason is because Paul puts it right in the middle, and he puts it there on purpose. So lots of the commentators will say, well, that's on purpose because it works both ways. It's about, you know, receiving, being strengthened with joy. You receive the strength and you experience it with joy. And it also applies to thanksgiving. So, um, you know, that we joyously give thanks to God, the Father. Gratitude pleases God. Last week um, on Friday, we, Elijah's soccer team had a bowling and pizza night. And so I drove him to bowling and I dropped him off. And um, when I went in to drop him off, there were some parents staying there. And so then I kind of felt guilty because I was going to go home. And so I went over to the team mom. Her name's Lisa, and I know her pretty well. And went over and I said, hey, like, I'm dropping Elijah off. Is that okay if I go? And she said, oh, yeah, no, that's totally fine. I said, oh, because, like, people are, she's like, oh, yeah, some people want to stay. That's fine. But, like, they're fine. They're good. So I said, okay, fine. So I left, and I came back about 10 minutes before the the time that they said to pick up. So I came in. The boys are still playing, bowling. They're finishing up their games or whatever. And I started chatting with one of the parents. And then suddenly I see Lisa make a beeline for me. And she comes over and she says, "Um, I need to tell you something about Elijah. And I was like, oh, what? What? I'm like, he seems okay. What happened? She said, he came up to me and said, thank you. (laughs) I was like, okay. Okay. Okay, good. Well, that's good. Good. Is that the thing? She said, no, no, no. Like, you don't understand. In the middle of everything, he came up to me and he said, thank you. And I said, are you leaving? And he said, no, I just wanted to say thank you. She said, can you believe that? I said, I hope I believe that. I hope he would do that. I don't, I don't, don't expect that, but okay. I'm like, well, that's great. And then she just stood there. It was, it was awkward, an awkward moment. It was awkward. And I know her really well, like, really well. She just, and she, like, no, he said thank you. I was like, okay, okay, you said that. Now, like, okay, is this like, no kid said thank you? Or like, wow, what's the deal? So when we went out to the car and we sat down, I said, Elijah, so Lisa came up to me and she said, you came and said thank you. Do you remember doing that? And he was like, yeah. I said, so why did you go say thank you in the middle of everything? And he said, well, I, we just ate our pizza. And so I ate the pizza, and it was good. And, I, and then I realized, you know, I wanted to thank someone for the pizza. And so I didn't know who to thank. And so I thought, oh, I could thank her because she kind of organized it. So he went and thanked her and blew her mind. <laughs> you know, that for Jewish people, Thanksgiving wasn't an emotional state. It wasn't like, oh, I'm happy. I feel happy. I'm going to do happy things. I'm sad. I feel sad. I'm going to do sad things. I feel grateful. I'm going to do thankful things. It wasn't like that. Thankfulness was an act of worship. It was like the the thing you would confess thanksgiving to God. You, You would practice. It was a practiced response. And at our house, people say thank you after the meal. It's practiced so that when you eat a meal... You look for who you're supposed to thank, and then you thank them. So the pizza might have been good, but it's a practiced response. And it bears fruit when it blows people's minds, whatever the thing is, right? How often do you practice gratitude? How, 
How often do you confess your blessings? How often do you rehearse what God has done? I knew a family who they got this big roll of paper and they made a big roll down the wall and stuck the paper up and then they drew a line and then they started writing down all of the things in their family history, their story of their family that God had done. Oh, remember when we first got married and God provided for us in this way? Hey, kids, did you hear about that? Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, oh, and and when we prayed for a, a child and we longed for that child and then God provided God gave you, yeah, you. Or the time where we, we needed a car and then God gave us a car. You, or, or God left money in an envelope on the doorstep. Or where we needed a mortgage and it was mo- a miracle that God gave us a mortgage for our house. And you write down all the things. You celebrate the acts of God. You practice it over and over until it becomes the habit. We're freed to follow. See, Thanksgiving is about remembering the mighty acts of God. It's a gate to worship, and it's, the, it's what's behind this table, the Eucharist, or we call it the Lord's Supper or communion. It means gratitude. That's what it means, Eucharist. And Paul's prayer for Colossian God-pleasing gratitude, it spills out into gospel joy, into this good news joy. And I was just with Jeff, I said that before, and the first night of our conference, he says, I'm going to tell you the gospel because that's how I do it. That's how I roll. The first night, I always tell you the gospel again. And he said, some people are like, oh, we've heard that before. And he said, that shouldn't be our response. Our response should be like in the Lion King where the, the hyenas are there and they're like, Mufasa, ooh. And then like, say it again, Mufasa, ooh, yes. Say one more time, Mufasa, ooh. He says, when I say, I'm going to tell you the gospel, your response should be like, ooh, yes, tell me again. I need to hear it again. Yes, it's good news. It's so good, I want to hear it again. God qualified you. God qualified you. Lauren and I, we switched our cell, our cell phone plans about a year ago to a corporate plan. So we found out there's a, a Canadian conference of Mennonite Brethren Churches they got together and they formed a corporate cell phone plan. So if you're a pastor at one of the churches or you're a staff or you're a part of that fam- the family of someone like that, you can get onto the corporate plan. So we said, awesome. We looked into it. They said, you each get $350 in credits, which we said, that'll be awesome. That'll cover our switch over. And that's like, awesome, $350. Wow, to switch to a lower monthly rate. Great, super, awesome. So last week, found out. Lauren and I didn't qualify for the $350 because we were already Bell customers and the corporate plan, although it's with a mobile provider, it's with Bell. So they said, sorry, you don't qualify. Like, what do you mean I don't qualify? Like, you said I would get this, right? $700 for the two of us. They said, we'll give you $70. I said, 70 What? This is, no, no, no. Why? Well, let's just pretend I'm from Rogers or something. Like, no, you aren't. You don't qualify. You don't qualify. Well, I want to run the Boston Marathon. Well, you don't qualify. Yeah, but I run lots of marathons. I, I, I work really hard. I give it my all. Well, you're not fast enough. You don't qualify. I, I want the BCAA rate for this hotel room. Can, can I get that? Well, are you a part of BCAA? Do you have the card? No. Well, then you don't qualify but I really want the discount. No, 
You need to be part of this special group. They get a special card. They get tow trucks. Are you part of the group? No. I really want God's forgiveness. I want eternal life. You don't qualify. Sorry. But, but, I, but I've been really good. You don't meet the standard. You fall short of the standard. Sorry. The word qualify means to be entitled to a particular benefit or privilege by fulfilling a necessary condition. Or in the Greek, it would be hekanao, to make sufficient or to render fit. This is the good news, guys. God qualified you. God qualified you. He rendered you fit. He made you sufficient. He met the condition. So it wasn't your good looks or your good works. It wasn't your birthplace or your birth mode. It wasn't your experience or your church membership cards. I got lots of them. God qualified you to share in the inheritance with the saints in light. That's how he said It's a beautiful way to say it. God qualified you and me to share in the inheritance with the saints in light. Jesus' broken body for us. His blood shed for us. His, his life offered. His death delivered. In resurrection, his victory assured that he qualified us for the inheritance. Or in Ephesians chapter 2, it says it this way in the message, which I love this passage in the message. Chapter 2, verses 4 to 6. It's a wonder God didn't lose his temper and do away with the whole lot of us because we didn't qualify. We weren't fast enough or good enough. We, we just didn't make it. Instead, immense in mercy and with an incredible love, he embraced us. And he took our sin-dead lives and he made us alive in Christ. He did all this on his own with no help from us. Thanks, Jesus, for your righteousness. Here, let me add a little bit of mine. Put a little bit on the top, just a sprinkling. My righteousness on yours, that'll top it up. No. No help from you or me. He qualified us, and then he picked us up and set us down in highest heaven in company with Jesus, our Messiah. And this language Paul uses as he goes into this part is, it's, there's Bible story pictures in the language he's using. And people who would read it, if they knew the Bible, which the Jewish people, they would have known the, the Old Testament. They would have known the stories that Paul was talking about. And so when he uses certain language, it would make them think about the story. What's the story? It's the story of the Exodus. It's like one of the most talked about stories through the Bible. You say, I know you told us last week. Yeah, well, I'll tell you again. Because do you know what? It was an oral tradition. They would say these stories over and over and over over one another until it sank so deep into their heart that they could tell the story. They could say, oh yeah, this is the story because I've heard it so much. The Israelites are enslaved. They're enslaved and God hears their cry and he raises up Moses as a deliverer. It says in Exodus, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt and so I have come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians. And the Israelites, through the power and the might of God, the wonders of God, he sets them free and he leads them out with the pillar and the cloud for them to follow him to the promised land, to the inheritance. That's the picture. 
Leviticus 20 says, God says, you will possess their land. I will give it to you as an inheritance, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has set you apart from the nations. The Israelites were brought out for a reason, that they would be set apart, a holy people, a chosen people. That's what God said, Exodus. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And with mighty acts of judgment, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God, and then you will know that I am the Lord your God, Yahweh, the God who saves. Deliverance and redemption and inheritance and holiness. These are the words Paul's using that make people think of this story. Now, freedom from Exodus, that was from slavery. That was, that's a story that's about surrender and submission, too. Because the people of Israel, they came out and they were set free. Oh, we're free. We can do whatever we want. Well, to follow me. That's the idea. Is that you would follow me. Well, I want cantaloupe. Cantaloupe? You want cantaloupe? I want cantaloupe right now. I want to eat my cantaloupe. Well, we don't have cantaloupe. Well, then I want to go back to Egypt. I want to go back. You want to go back to slavery? You want to go be a slave again so you can eat cantaloupe? Yes. Because then I'm free. Well, you weren't free there. Well, I, I'm not free now either if I can't have my cantaloupe right now. This is, it's like, this is about submission and surrender. And then we want to go back to slavery for something like cantaloupe, melons. First Peter says to the church, he writes this. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. So it's just Jesus. It's just Jesus. This is the center of Paul's argument, and we're going to get into the nuts and bolts of it next week. This beautiful statement he makes about Jesus. Just Jesus. (laughs) Just how alone it stands. There's no addition. There's no plus. There's no and to it. It's just Jesus, God's beloved son. And if you know him, if you're found in him, then you are also God's beloved. This is the beautiful story. His righteousness is your righteousness. There's no add-on. There's no addition to it. Colossians 1, 21 to 23 says this. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. How good is that story? That's good news. It's a good story. Deliverance and redemption and inheritance and holiness. So we have everything we need to please God in Jesus. We must look silly trying to please God all the time with our legs sticking up or lowering our, you know, like we've got all these weird things we do, all the silly walks. Knowing God must fuel our obedience. We obey because we love him. And we may find what pleases God surprising. (laughs) Bearing fruit and growing and knowing him being strengthened by his all-sufficient power, giving thanks as a discipline. And of course, 
when and if we begin to understand this, that the gospel becomes a joy. This good news becomes a joy to our life, that we've been qualified by God, that we've been delivered and set free. We're forgiven and redeemed. And all this is through just Jesus. And when we surrender to it, we'll find life there. Let's pray.